You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Andrew Child, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 35, The Secret Garden, and with us today is director of the original production, Susan H. Shulman. Shulman has directed Broadway's Little Women, as well as the 1989 revival of Sweeney Todd, which garnered her a Tony Award nomination, and the 1998 revival of The Sound of Music, as well as the original off-Broadway production of Violet. Her other credits include productions at the Stratford Festival, City Center Encores, and York Theater Company. She's currently a professor at Penn State University, where she heads the graduate directing program. Susan, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Sure. My pleasure. So tell me uh, just a little bit about your relationship with the musical in question today, The Secret Garden. Well, as you stated, I was the director of the original Broadway production. I um, met Lucy and um, Marcia through Heidi Ettinger, who was the original producer, one of the original producers and the uh, Tony winning set designer for that production. Um, and uh, she came to me one day when I was actually teching Sweeney Todd at Circle in the Square. Uh, Heidi came to me and uh, asked me if I knew the story of the secret garden. And I said, uh, sure. Yeah, of course, I had read it as a, as a younger person. And I loved the story. And she told me that they were, you know, in the middle of sort of developing this musical. Um, and wanted to know if I'd be interested in coming aboard in the de- this kind of secondary development stage. And um, I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I think so, sure. And so they sent me, what they did was they sent me a, a, um, a demo recording of Lucy Simon singing the score. Mm. And this is so interesting, Andrew, but a number of people have had this reaction from the opening chords of Clusters of Crocus, which is the little opening sequence that Lily sings, I was hooked. 
I almost didn't have to hear anything else. That there was makes something sense. about those chords, and we yep. call them the lily chords, you know, mm-hmm. um, that just grabbed my heart in a way that is inexplicable. Uh, you know, these things happen rarely in life. And, uh, and then, of course, I did go on to listen to the rest of the score, and I was, uh, you know, completely captivated by the melodic nature of it um, and the smart poetic lyrics you know they were just not they were not expected everything in it was sort of caught you off guard and you went oh whoa yeah okay (laughs) the imagery Mm. you know all of that um so I said yeah come on let's do this so something that is talked about at length in the chapter is sort of looking at the sound of music as an early example of a work that is being helmed by women, is being led by women. Uh, was that something that you were aware of and conscious of when agreeing we to take on the show? We were aware of it after the fact. Okay. You know, I, I can't speak for Heidi, but... Mm-hmm. I know that when she she was the originator of this project, she felt that it should be a musical. And, and she was the one, I think, who contacted Lucy and Marcia. Originally, she might have thought this was a story that should be written by women. I mean, after all, it's about, you know, Mary Lennox. It's about a, a female child mm-hmm. uh, going through this traumatic experience. And um, I think she came to me because of Sweeney Todd. Okay. I think she had seen that production at York mm-hmm. and something about that. Uh, it was, Her husband at the time was Rocco Landisman. And I think he suggested that she go see it and then contact me. Um, oh, it's only after the fact that we looked around and went, oh my goodness, we're mostly women. And that includes the designers. All three mm. designers were women as well. The, wow. uh, Michael Lichtefeld, who's the choreographer, poor guy, was the <laughs> only male on the creative team. Wow. Um and uh, it was very, it was so, it was an after the fact kind of revelation. Uh-huh. Um, and who knows, it could have subliminally, it could have been, because when they asked me who I wanted to design the show, we already had Heidi aboard. You know, I was a newbie. I had only done one Broadway show. And I just said, okay, I thought of it. Who's the best costume designer at the time? Theone Aldridge. Who's the best lighting designer at the time? Theron Messer. I went, I'll take those two. And, you know, to our great delight, they said yes. So um, I think it was just, a, you know, a, a question of the things all falling into place that way. Um, and it was, um, I think it was the right decision. Anyway, as do you things think, go. Do you think the show yeah. gained anything because there were women oh, sort of at the helm of the ship? Certainly. Certainly. Uh, I mean, Heidi was the only mother among us at the time. No, I guess I think Masha had a little boy. Yet. I, yeah. So there were a couple of mothers involved with the women. I mean, you, you know what is interesting, Andrew? Mm-hmm. During the course of the show, uh, I have many interviews and people would say, uh, does, did being a woman affect the way you directed this? I got the same questions, by the way, on Sweeney Todd. Did being mm-hmm. a woman affect the way you directed it? I went, well, of course, being a woman affects the way I do everything. I am a woman, mm. you know. Uh, and I guess, yeah, I mean, were we saying this is 
going to be from a female point of view. Yes, this is going to be from a female child's point of view. This is a little girl and um, she is stripped of any sense of power in that time and under those particular circumstances. Uh, were she a little boy, her circumstances would not be quite as dire, quite frankly. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I did that I, answer your question? <laughs> no, absolutely. I immediately, it brings to mind um, uh, Nadia Boulanger quote, um, that I'm sure I'll misquote it a little bit, but okay. essentially she's asked in an interview, um, is she shocked that she's the first woman to ever conduct for the New uh -huh. York Philharmonic? And she right. responded, um, no, I got over the shock of being a woman a long time ago, um, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds, you know, is not exactly what you're yeah. saying, but it kind of, but you know. The, yeah, but it, the implications are all there, right? Mm -hmm. The implications are all there. Good for her. So, what <laughs> isn't that shocking? Right, right, right. <laughs> what sort of considerations did you have going on in your mind? You know, you mentioned you're hooked by this score the minute mm -hmm. it happens. What mm -hmm. are you bringing into the room on those first early rehearsals, those first reads, those first well, workshops? I think in, 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 in the discussions about the writing, too. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make sure we did a lot of work on uh, childhood trauma and mm. and just were very clear that we wanted to tell this story through Mary's eyes and through the eyes of a child who has suffered a traumatic, catastrophic traumatic event in her mm -hmm. life. I mean, the worst thing, given many child psychologists that we consulted, the worst thing that can happen to a child is abandonment. Okay. Right. Is for their parents to leave them, to abandon them. And in this particular instance, through no choice of theirs, the parents abandon her. But not only her parents, everyone abandons her. Right. Everyone that she had any any connection to is gone. And this was, you know, the Secret Garden is told in a very non-literal fashion. And that was a choice to tell it through mainly uh, her nightmares and her daydreams and things that would happen to children when they carry all this emotional baggage with them, which are those ghosts, which we call the dreamers, which are all these people from her past life that she tries to hold on to in some way possible. And the only uh -huh. way you can hold on to someone who is dead is through memory, right? And as Archie says, you know, they're not gone, you know, they're just dead. And, um, that's such a poignant moment when she says, you know, do you see dead people too? And he says, well, you know, they're not gone. They're just dead. And um, so the, the, this was discussions. We had a lot of discussions about how, what is the storytelling going to be? And this was tricky because non-literal storytelling wasn't exactly the way most musicals were being told in that time. Right. Uh -huh. And we got a lot of criticism for it, truth be known. Uh, the reviews we got were all over the place. They were the best thing ever, the worst thing ever. I mean, they were polar opposites of each other. Wow. And um, which is, you know, in retrospect, because it's so beloved is, is, is interesting. But, you know, we're not the only show that had that um, response early right. on. And um, but it was very important that we be true to this little girl's 
loss and also to her sense of powerlessness, which so many women um, go through and experience, right? And especially in that time, right? Um, and that it was very important that she regain her stamina, regain her sense of grit, regain her, you know, the agency is the word that's very popular now, right? Um, mm -hmm. But it was important to us that that was the story that we see her able to rescue herself. And she does it through rescuing others. Mm. And that was the story we wanted to tell. You know, the garden is the perfect symbol, right? The garden seemed dead. And that's again, Dickens says very much what Archie says. He says, things just look dead. You got to dig deep and then you'll see the roots are alive. Mm. Right? When he sings Wick, essentially it's what he's saying to her. So she encounters these people, all of whom say to her, you can, you can come alive again. You can be alive again. And it's so necessary for her to find a home as well. The garden being, you know, we talk a lot about the Virginia Woolf room of one's own, right? A woman needing a place where she can be herself, where nobody's going to tell her what to do or how she should be. And the garden and the rescue of the garden becomes a symbol of that too for Mary. Um, anyway, so this was a lots of discussion about that to make sure that the storytelling stayed on track and that it was told through her eyes mm. so that there was a lot of non-literal storytelling that goes on. You know, people were so concerned about that. You know, people who job it is to be concerned about that. Right. Were, it's confusing, people won't know what it's about. You know, it's too symbolic. It's too non-literal. They're not going to understand what's going on. I mean, I was so paranoid at one point that I would go out during previews. I'd go out in the lobby and ask parents if I could interview their children. Wow. And I would say to some seven-year-old, I said, hi, you know, introduce myself and all that. And I said, so did you understand the beginning of the show? And to a little person, they said, you mean Mary's Nightmare? I went, yeah, thank oh. you. See, kids are non-literal. Kids mm -hmm. live in a different world. They don't start go analyzing, going, well, this and that. You know, a lot of adults, they understand it, but they project that someone else won't understand it, right? Mm -hmm. So they say, it's unclear. I get it, but someone else won't get it. Mm. But kids just get it. Was there was there a They're consciousness just, uh, that you wanted this show to be for a young audience or acceptable to a young audience? No, well, we wanted it accessible to a young audience, but we want we wanted it, and it turned out to be a show for all ages. That is what it actually turned out to be. It um, it's a very romantic show, so it was a date night show, which okay. we would we liked a lot too to see people grabbing each other's hands during you know certain parts of mm -hmm. the show. It's very romantic. Obviously, it's about great love. Um, and and also, you know, letting go, how you let go of some of loss, which is something we all experience at one point or another in and how you move on, right? Um, so we wanted it to be, to answer your question, yes, we wanted it to be accessible to young audiences, but we wanted it to be potent for every age. Mm. So again, and 
I apologize, but I'll keep coming back to the score because this is yes. for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the secret garden just get your hands on the soundtrack it is Uh so exquisite could you sort of walk us through you know these songs are beautiful on their own and I'm sure listening to the Mm -hmm. demos was incredible what was it like to start hearing some of the Uh, greatest singers alive perform the score yes well she's a she's a wonderful melodist I mean Lucy is a melodist that's her soul is melody you know um and, and they're transformative melodies. They invade your whole body in ways you're not even aware of. And, uh, and I think that um, the element of being able to work on a show and have it orchestrated for your production was amazing. To have Bill Brown there, you know, Lucy's music, people say with sort of Appalachian, well, it's really Yorkshire and Yorkshire became Appalachian, you know, oh, so she's very, she's, she's very on target there. Um, but she, it, it's, they're emotional, her melodies are emotional, but they're also, um, let me put this, they're, um, they, they're motivational, okay? They're also motivational. So they're beautiful, but they move you forward. They don't move you, they don't lull you. They move you into action in ways. Mm. I mean, come to my garden. How beautiful is that? How would I ever know? They're ballads, but they move you to do something, right? Mm -hmm. They move you forward. They move your emotions to go on to the next thing you need to do. Mm. Does that make sense to you, Andrew? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you hit on two great songs that sort of epitomize that. Right. Right. And I think that's what was so unusual to me was to hear a ballad that 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 didn't just sit back on itself, but was really about. I need to do this or you need to do this or, you know, um, I mean, quite literally, Martha's uh, hold on, hold on. Right. Exactly. Giving instructions, giving it's it's imperative, you know, it's imperative. Right. Um, and, And and, you know, I go back to that beautiful lyric that uh and people quote it to me all the time it's this day not you that's bound to go away Mm. i i want to cry every time i hear that lyric because we've all been through so much yep and you have to keep holding on to that right Mm -hmm. this will get better this will go away but you will still be here how Mm. important is that about going through trauma Mm. you know it also... and it's so wise coming it's such a simple thought and so wise coming from such a visceral person as Martha I was just going to say when we contrast that with you know her song in act one you know right. she's singing about if I had a wooden boat to all of a sudden right. have the chambermaid singing to hold right. on is yeah. one of the highlights of the show amidst so many highlights in this score and mm-hmm. in this show, is this a piece that you would have interest in going back to in reviving in doing? Well, it? interesting. We were supposed just before the pandemic hit, we were going to do a big revival in Australia. Australia oh, wow. had done the show originally. I think um, this is a great story. I was seeing the show. Uh, the tour ran two years and closed in Vancouver. 
And I went to the closing. I flew out to Vancouver to be there for the last performance. And there was a man sitting in front of me and he turned to me at intermission and he said, would you like to bring this, stri- this show to Australia? I went, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he turned out to be John Frost, who uh, is a very well-known Australian theater producer, probably wow. the best known Australian theater producer. And, and we did. They packed up the whole show in Vancouver, put it on a boat and <laughs> sent it across the Pacific Ocean to Sydney. Wow. Um, and um, it arrived unscathed. It was amazing when they unpacked it several months, you know, a year later, whatever. I mean, it took months for it to get there. It was completely unscathed. Wow. Whomever had packed that up in <laughs> Vancouver, every little teacup was perfect because they used all the props and everything. Anyway, so we had done it then in Australia. Um, and it was a huge success. We had Anthony Warlow and Philip Quast, Marina, very, very high-end Australian musical theater stars in it. Mm. And um, it was a big success and they wanted to revive it 25 years after they had done it. And we were gonna do it at the Opera House and it was gonna be a big deal. And of course the pandemic hit, we were all cast. All oh, wow. Kathy Zuba had done the new costumes and um, we were ready to go and the pandemic hit, so. Do you think that that. when you were tasked with approaching that production, would that, that it would have been 2019 or 20, somewhere in that range, 2020, 2020, 2020, yeah. 2020 yeah. is there a difference in the way you are approaching the show all these years <laughs> later? Well, you know, Heidi was going to design it again. Heidi was going to stay with it as a set designer because the producers wanted it not to be just dusted off and put it back on, but they wanted it to resonate to the original production. Mm. That was part of our mission. They definitely wanted, they weren't interested in reimagining. Okay. Because everybody's love of that original production was so great. That, but it's 30 years later. Of course, I'm 30 years older. There have been innovations in theater technology, right? Mm. So Heidi and I went through it with a set that pretty much resonated the original set, but moved in different ways because now okay. you can. Right. But I will tell you, going back, and because Heidi and I at that time, which was about two and a half years ago, went back to see the video at Lincoln Center that captured the Broadway production. And we were very moved by how um, modern it looked. It did not look like an old fashioned musical. There were mm. no in ones. There was nothing. Everything was very uh, cinematic in its movement. And we thought, oh, look at that. We weren't so stupid. See, um, it, that impressed us and we were delighted. And we were also, the other thing that impressed me in watching the video was Saren's lighting. Oh, how on earth she managed to light those ghosts, those dreamers, and not have any corporal individual walk into their light was amazing. You know how mm. hard that is? That's, yeah, that's crazy. Crazy hard, right? And so I, I asked our stage manager at the time, I said, you, how did she do that? He said, well, Susan, it was a bit of a collaboration. You were helpful. It, and, you know, there's a long way to do it. But we also had five spotlights, which is helpful. Okay. You know. <laughs> do you think that your push and your insistence that you tell this story in a non-literal way, did mm-hmm. that 
sort of keep it timeless, keep it seeming I modern? I think so. I do think so. I think because of that, um, it looks modern. It mm. looks modern, even looking at it 30 years ago. You know, of course, we made changes and mm. we added things. We cut certain things we didn't like, made certain transitions better, you know, now that we could, now that we had the technology to do it. Um, but I think, yes, I think that's exactly correct. And do you think that sort of now we can say it's pretty standard for a Broadway musical to be yep. staged in a non-literal way? Do you think that yep. has anything to do with The Secret Garden and its success? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't answer that question, right? Okay. But I yeah. hope so. I we'll hope, take that as I an hope answer. I hope it motivated certain directors and choreographers and designers. I hope so. Um, you know, it's always been... I've always preached non-literal storytelling in musical theater. Mm. Um, I taught um, I taught the libretto workshop at BMI for years. Okay, and uh, you know what that is—the BMI, yes. the Lemon Angle BMI musical theater. So I taught taught the libretto class for many years, and I emphasized um, non-literal storytelling. I mean, to me, the more furniture you have, the more walls, doors, and windows, the less you can sing. That's how I feel. You know, the less you can dance, the less you can see. I mean, keeping all that stuff away opens up the ability for all sorts of musical storytelling, song, mm. dance, where, you know, an upholstered sofa just does not. Uh, some years later, I ran into the, um, and I said that in a lecture, I said that in a lecture, I ran into the um, authors of Book of Mormon, the young guys, and uh -huh. we were at some function, and one of them came up to me and said, hey, by the way, I remember your lecture at BMI, no upholstered sofas. I laughed. I said, yep. And he said, well, you've seen Book of Mormon. I said, uh-huh. He goes, see, no upholstered furniture. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, and yeah, when's so the cute. last big musical that put a couch on stage, you know? <laughs> right. I, well, yeah. I mean, but you know, I mean, I'm expanding that into right. watching, um, you know, it's it's stuff. I just had a, a discussion with one of my grad students last night and um, we were talking about she's working on a, on a set and she said, I keep saying to the designers, less stuff, less stuff, you know, um, and I go, yeah, yeah. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Would you say if a young person came to you and they were about to direct the secret garden, mm -hmm. would there be anything that you would say 
this will be the kiss of death. Avoid it for this show. I, I would just say literalness will be the kiss, kiss of death. Okay. I will say, but I saw a production. I only saw, isn't this is interesting and the truth. I only saw one other production of Secret Garden. Wow. I've heard of the other ones and I've been talked about and people have sent me photographs, but I mm-hmm. only saw one and it was done in Honolulu and it was a community theater. And Michael Lichtefeld and I were flying to Australia and they, it was the first, it was just after it was licensed to stock an amateur. Okay. And um, they invited us, not knowing that we actually could make it. But we wow. were flying to Australia and we thought, well, you know, you can fly from New York to Honolulu and then from Honolulu, we'll fly to, you know, Auckland and then on to Sydney. And it seemed like, you know, not too far out of the way. So we did that and we went to see it. It was terrific. Now, it was obviously a community theater production. Mm-hmm. Right. So but it was diverse because Hawaii is diverse. So the mm-hmm. casting was diverse, which didn't in any way impede the storytelling whatsoever but the director had done such a brilliant job of keeping it not letter non-literal and he had never seen the new york production wow so this was his own you know um his own vision but he knew how to tell that story he knew to tell it from the heart and emotion of that child and uh and through her eyes and it was beautiful i mean it was nothing like the original production which of course we always appreciate right mm-hmm. when directors use their own imagination and own vision and there were some things in that that i went gee i wish i had thought of that that's beautiful oh wow <laughs> you know um and so i was very happy about that i was very happy to see that so that's um, the advice that i would give i would get you know, just remember i would say remember whose story it is mm-hmm. remember what she's going through Remember how she's carried these people with her and for what purpose. Mm. And then when she lets them go at the end, then you understand she's home. I'm curious, this this non-literal storytelling that you seem to really advocate for throughout your career, how does that intersect with when you are tasked with reviving the sound of music which of course yeah i mean that's interesting yeah something well the sound of music if you remember the revival we cut all the interior scenes so Mm. all the scenes with the exception of the bedroom the uh, the scene in which there's the uh storm you know okay uh which was just one little scene but even that set was non-literal we put everything outdoors um so there's no interior no interior scenes uh, that was as, the best I could do, <laughs> okay. you know, keeping this out of music. But also, um, if you look at that set, the way the, the Alps sort of are part of the um, all the environments all the time. So you're always aware of where they are and how imprisoned they become when the Nazis take over, you know, mm. so there's that thought too. Um, and we try to do that, try to keep that surround there all the time. So there was that feeling, you know, of, uh, of place and what that meant for people in Salzburg at that time, you know, mm. um, they were caught. Interesting. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, the use of the Nazi flags, which were oversized and um, expressionistic. People yelled at me for that. They said, you know, it's not real. I went, well, have you looked at pictures of 
Salzburg when the Nazis marched in? Go, go online, look at pictures of Salzburg when the Nazis marched in. They covered every single bit of architecture with Nazi flags. Mm. So that was my expressionistic way of saying how the Nazis were trying to obliterate the Austrian consciousness. Was there pushback from fans of the movie with different artistic options like that? No, no, actually, we I've had permission, um, which has since not been granted to actually change the position of certain songs. Okay. so I we moved. Lonely Goat Herd to the concert, you know, and favorite things to the bedroom and we took favorite things away from the mother abbess just Mm. because the whole scene leading up to that she's talking about not singing in the abbey (laughs) so i was always like excuse me you just spent 10 minutes saying don't sing in the abbey and now we're Mm -hmm. singing in the abbey so that was a little for me you know right a little problematic um so i like the way the movie positioned it better yeah certainly an improvement uh, yeah and we got permission to do that so Yeah, that was good. What are the but sort of yeah. if you look at Little Women, that mm-hmm. said is very non-literal. So, did was that a conscious choice as well, uh, well for that story? Uh, yeah. Also, I was working with Derek McLean, and Derek and I had already done Violet together, mm-hmm. and I remember that was the first time I worked with Derek. And um, I mean, how lucky was I? I worked with Kathy Zuber and Derek McLean on Violet. Um, and I remember the discussions we had because, you know, Violet takes place, quote, on a bus, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I also know that I'm not going to do a musical on a bus the whole time. They're not going to be sitting in a literal bus. Right. So once we got past that, once Derek, you know, he, we were getting to know each other, he was bringing the ideas. And at, at one point he said, you know what? We don't need a bus. <laughs> I said <laughs> Yes, we don't need a bus. We got it. They say they're on a bus, you know. Um, and so we used all those benches that we just moved around that became everything. It became the bus, it became the cafe, it became the wait- waiting room, it became anything we needed it to be. We needed them to be. And um, and I think it worked great at Great Britain mm. ke- keeping it that, again, that non-literal storytelling. And do you think um, sort of sort of similar to The Secret Garden, does that keep these shows being sort of timeless, being sort of undated? Timeless, yes, yes, exactly. I mean, and also it's really not about her bus journey, right? It's about a journey of the heart. So the truth of the matter is what is it really about? Uh, is it about that Greyhound bus or is it about what's in Violet's heart, right? Hmm. Did you did you see at all or did you see anything from the ART production that was on a moving bus at all? No. No. I didn't. Oh, okay. No. Okay. Um they had the audience sort of on a bus and you went around Cambridge. Okay. And all right. Well, I, I mean just I'm sorry, just backing up a little bit. The the, the other part of the non-literalness was the decision not to have a scar not to have an actual Mm. literal scar on her face. Yeah, that was something else that Janine and Brian Crawley and I discussed, and that was our decision. 
And that has sort of been honored in later productions as well. It has. Yeah, it has. It's actually in the licensing agreement. Okay. They say it's their preference, but they don't demand it. Okay. And can you elaborate a little on the reasoning behind that or the thought process? There? Sure. But it's not about her scar. I mean, the mm. scars, you know, it reminds me of um, Glass Menagerie, mm-hmm. right? And her limp. It's not, she has she's a little limp, but in her head, it's huge, right? Mm. We, she's got a scar, but that's not her issue. Okay. And we didn't want the scar to be the issue. We wanted it to be about her soul and her spirit and her need to find who she is, right? To discover this mm. journey of self-discovery, okay? Um, forgive the cliche, but um, so we didn't want it to be fixated on something that in her mind was actually much bigger than it really was. And so how do you do that? How can you show that on stage that Mm. it's not really as bad as you think it is, right? If you have an actual scar there, this way it could be anything, right? It could be little, it could be big, whatever. But we wanted it to be not as bad as she thinks it is. And people say that, hey, it's not so bad. What do you, it's a little scar over there. But in her mind, it's the reason for all her issues, right? The mm. reason for all her problems. And as we know that as human beings, we often fixate on one thing. If I were taller, if I were thinner, if I were, bu- right? Mm-hmm. When you know it's rarely about anything like that. Right. I'm a little bit curious about your work on a show that for, sort of from its original production was very non-literal, uh, Sweeney Todd, which you did at York mm-hmm. Theatre Company, and then right. you did the first Broadway revival. Yeah. Was that a sort of process where you actually were working with the original creators? Well, um, only one of the original creators was alive at the time. So. Okay. Um, Stephen Sondheim was in London, so he was he was in the UK. He was doing the lectures, that series, very famous series on musical theater writing. So he wasn't there for the York theater production. He came at the very end uh, when we were actually having a dress tech. But I did talk to him before about the production. I knew him slightly because I had done company okay. and a little night music already. So I'd had a, a, a slight uh, relationship with him, a, you know, a passing relationship with him. Um, and he had liked those productions, which is why I got permission to do this, because they, at that time, to do a Sondheim show within the metropolitan New York area, you needed to be approved by the authors. Okay. So um, Hugh Wheeler, of course, was gone at that time. Um, so... We talked about, I said to him, he know he knew the York Theater very well. He had seen my production of company. He knew exactly what the space was. So I said to him, um, I, you know, I'm thinking I can't, you know, the big production was wonderful. It was terrific, but there's no way we can do that at York. And I would love to investigate doing a small chamber opera piece. Hmm. Uh, with Sweeney Todd, making it as small as I possibly can without, and this is important, without cutting one note or one line of dialogue. And Hmm. he said, okay, what are you thinking? And I said, well, I've gone through the script and the score, and I think I can get it down to the 
um, the principal cast and a quintet. Okay. And he said, okay, uh, three men and two women. I went, okay. He goes, fine. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. And then, and then, uh, so we did it. And um, of course, I did it on a basketball court. I think this is important <laughs> to understand. I wish I could say, oh my God, I'm so brilliant. But I had a basketball court with my stage. So I had to come up with inventive ways of using that space because in the daytime, it was a gymnasium. Okay. So usually the shows that were done there, they, uh, they had a small stage. They did them proscenium. But I decided that because Sweeney Todd, again, takes place mostly in outdoor spaces that I wanted to use the whole gym. So in doing that, I, um, and also I'm a child of uh, regional theaters that were all uh, thrust, right? Okay. When I grew up and I was at Yale and I went out in the world, all the regional theaters were thrust. So having audiences on all sides thrust around are not intimidating to me. That was sort of what I grew up with. Mm. So I thought, okay, let's do that. So we did it stadium wise with audience on two sides because we had the basketball hoops on the oh, end. <laughs> so we obscured them a little bit, you know. And um, anyway, so that's what we did. And it, it, it was moved really beautifully in that space. I was very happy with it. And Steve came, um, as I said, to the last uh, dress tech and he walked in and we were so nervous Michael and I was Michael Lippenfeld of the choreographer we were so nervous that we actually had dinner beforehand and drank a whole bottle of wine and if you know the two of us that's a lot um, okay. but we were just you know I mean it's Sweeney Todd and it's Stephen Sondheim and right. you know what if it's not good and he doesn't right. like it and um so he came in and he said um you know where do you want me to sit and I went oh God. I said, you know what? Sit next to me. And he said, isn't that going to make you nervous? And I said, not as nervous as watching you across the room taking mm. notes. So he laughed and he said, okay. So he sat down next to me and uh, <clears throat> we did the first act and he had a legal pad, a yellow legal pad. And he started to write from the first note of music he started to write. Oh, wow. And he had about five pages of notes at the end of the first act handwritten it he wasn't saying anything he was still writing as the lights came up at intermission and I was like okay so my life is over it's fine uh -huh. you know I can find other things to do it'll be okay <laughs> and he's not saying anything he's still writing so I said okay boss I used to call him boss all the time I said okay boss um what do you think he goes what I said what do you think he goes about what I went the show what do you think about the show he goes oh oh it's swell it's absolutely swell. I went, then what are you writing? He went, oh, you know, I'm very picky about musical things. It's a little picky things, nothing. I said, oh my God. All right, I thought my life was over. And the two things, he had two notes for me. Uh -huh. Cut the organ prelude, which he said he always hated, okay. which we did. And also we had done uh, the entire, um, the shaving sequence, we had also, we also did the tooth pulling, which follows it, right. which hadn't been. And he said, you don't need it. It's very good. It's wonderful. It's very funny. But the, the shaving section is enough. Hmm. The Pirelli is enough. He said, I just think it's, you know, gilding the lily. I said, okay. And we put back in the, um, 
we put back in the Joanna for um, the what's his name, the villain. Um, anyway, Before which Judge he liked. Turpin. Yeah, the Judge right. Turpin, which he liked. He liked that a lot. I thought it made a lot of sense to put that back in. So mm. that was that. Um, when we got the word that we were going to move to Circle in the Square, um, she was around more mm -hmm. uh, because he was now in New York and he was very, very helpful and very, very generous. It was my first Broadway show. And wow. he said to me, I mean, can you imagine making a Broadway debut with Sweeney Todd? I mean, honestly, it, yeah, I, wow. you're fortunate, but also sort of horrified mm -hmm. because it's a masterpiece mm. and you don't want to be the one to mess it up. Right. Right. So, um, but he said to me that um, he said, look, Susan, um, this is your first Broadway show. You don't have a lot of clout. The producers are going to come to me all the time. And I'm not going to let that happen. Uh, if they come to me, I'm going to say, I don't know. Talk to Susan. And I'll tell you something else. I will never disagree with you publicly. I was so moved. And he, to his word, he never disagreed with me publicly. He rarely disagreed with me, actually, on the entire wow. show. We had discussions, but we never had any altercations or disagreements. But if producers came to him and asked him a question, mm -hmm. he would always say, let's go talk to Susan. Let's see what she thinks. And he kept throwing the power back to me all the time. That's incredible. And um, opening night, I thanked him for that. And I said... Um, I just have to tell you, your generosity gave me a great deal of um, encouragement. And um, he said, oh, it's easy. He said, look, giving is the easy part. Learning how to take is the hard part. And I'll never forget that. I mean, when you think about collaboration, isn't that true? Mm. Giving the ideas is the easy part. Sitting back and shutting up and listening to other people on your creative team is the hard part. Mm. And, and uh, he was he was wonderful to us, to the entire company, to Michael and me. He he never ever insisted, even if we had a discussion about something he liked or didn't like, and I liked. And he said, "Well, you're the director. I don't feel that strongly about it. Fine." Wow. Yeah, wow. he was, I, I'm very, very, very fortunate to have had so many collaborations with him. And he was the same way on Merrily. He was wonderful on Merrily. Mm. Which, so I'm curious about, you've done a lot of work reviving these masterpieces, reworking them. Do you approach that with a different mindset than when you're going in? Because you've also to done so much show? work to new shows. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, when something's been revived, when you're doing a revival, um, I always want to make sure that I'm still true to the original intent of the authors. Mm. It's very important to me that I'm not just, um, you know, it's not becoming a director's ego trip. Okay. That it is really, in, and you know, a great work of art sustains many interpretations the truth of the matter is right if right. it's if it's good it, it sustains many interpretations and when we're doing well you know first of all Sweeney Todd was is a masterpiece when we're doing narrowly 
primarily was thought of at the time of being a flawed, difficult show with a lot, of, a lot of problems. This was the first revival in New York that we did at the York and they were gonna do some work on it. George first wanted to do some work on it. And um, I remember before I started, I talked to Steve. I didn't have a relationship with George initially that only we started working, but prior to that, I didn't. So I, I talked to Steve and I said, Steve, you want to tell me something about the show? Tell me what you feel was missing the first time, why it was a problem. That it is. I'll never forget this because I burst out laughing. He said, Susan, if I knew the answer to that, I would have gotten it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and I just burst out laughing. And um, anyway, um, so, you know, he said, I'm interested. He said, truly what I'm interested in is your vision. Mm. That's what I'm interested in. And so I was, it was lovely to have George there at the time. I mean, he was alive at the time. I mean, a very, I mean, truthfully problematic collaborator. Uh -huh. If we disagreed on anything, well, not disagreed, even had a discussion about something, he would say, and this in retrospect is very funny, right? He would go, you're betraying me. And I would oh, go, no, no, George, I'm not betraying you. We're having a discussion. When I oh betray you, gosh. you will know it. <laughs> this is not betrayal. <laughs> anyway, it was it was fine. I mean, I had a, I got a sense of humor about it all, and he made changes that I thought were helpful in the storytelling. What they wanted to clarify, which is you know all in the now licensed script, is how you got back. You know, because it's, it's a story told backwards. So they, oh, they wanted to make sure that when you flipped back and you flipped back and you flipped back, there was a transition that made sense, right? That okay. helped people, that you knew why things came after things instead of before them. Anyway, so he did, he did some lovely work on it. And in the end, they were very pleased with the production. So um, it was fun. <laughs> Do you have a show that you are dying to sink your teeth into that you would love to stage a revival of somewhere? No. No? I really, I, I it's so interesting. I, um, you know, I'm old and I've done a lot of shows. Mm -hmm. And when I worked at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, I did sometimes five or six shows a season. Can you imagine being that wow. young? Wow. Um, it, it, and I did so many of them. And I think West Side Story, maybe I'd love to do again because I only did it at Pittsburgh and it, we only had 10 days of rehearsal, but okay. um, 11 days. But I had a wonderful cast. I had Stephen Bogardus and Judy Blazer. I mean, at the time, it, it and I had done the other show, Follies, was another show that I did at Civic Light Opera that. I wouldn't mind doing it again because I, I love it and I had a great time doing it. It's so such an emotional piece for me. But um, mm. but no, nothing out there. No, I have to truly say that. I mean, new shows. Love to work on new shows. Great. Love to uh, you know. That always is um, to me so exciting. Sitting down with writers and composers and. Um, telling them that the first 30 pages need to go. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's so funny. It's a joke I have with some other directors and I, because so much of uh, 
many new shows initially have the problem of uh, too much exposition, right? And it's also mm-hmm. mainly upfront, right? So you're always in there going, okay, I have some seriously bad news for you. All these pages here in the front, we don't actually need them. Wow. So, what was interesting in watching the workshop of Secret Garden uh, and then, which is pretty close to the final Broadway production, what we cut was all chatter, was all um, exposition that we found out anyway in the okay. course of con- conflict, in the course of the show going on. We didn't need it all up front, right? Okay. Um, and so we found that and we turned certain things into musical numbers that had been scenes and they became a musical number, which is always better in a musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway. That's fabulous. Thank you so much for talking with me today and highlighting so many of your major works. My and- pleasure. Thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. Please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about The Secret Garden, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Andrew Child, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.